0: Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the new sea
1: Welcome back to episode 15 of the Art and Science of Running podcast with Malk Kent and Jacob Pusey and we're joined today by Jeff Burns. Welcome Jeff.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah.
1: Thanks for making this time um, in your busy schedule. Um, you, you've got quite a lot going on. Um, your you're currently working on your PhD in kinesiology and biomechanics, correct? At the University of Michigan. Yes, sir. All right. Um, prior to that, you um, you worked in biomedical engineering. You have um, bachelor and master's degrees in in that, and you and you actually worked in in that field for a bit. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yep. I worked uh, as an engineer for St. Jude Medical. They make pacemakers. So did that and then came back to Ann Arbor and was a research engineer at the Department of Orthopedic Surgery doing more, uh, you know, applied biomechanics research with surgeons and residents. And then, yeah, then came back to school to study my one true love. (laughs)
1: wow now did you do your undergraduate work in ann arbor as well at the university of michigan yeah Yeah.
2: i did i did it um undergraduate and master's both here it's again the place is close to my heart i bleed maize and blue (laughs) (laughs) Wow! um
1: and and for those even though most of our listeners will be um Running runners and or running fans. Uh, I think most people, when they think of the University of Michigan, they think of of football or basketball, which they've had some really good teams there. But um, the University of Michigan ha- has also had some some good uh, track and field athletes. And obviously, academics is a very strong suit at the University of Michigan as well. They don't. I'm not discounting that, but um, in the headlines, a lot of times it's the sports teams that they get a lot of attention. So.
3: Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. There is a a storied rich history here of, um, uh, I mean, yeah, track and field across the board, but definitely, especially distance running with Ron Warhurst, um, is, you know, a veritable legend in his own right. Having coached, um, you know, he's got a handful of Olympic medalists under his belt from Brian Deemer in the steeplechase, Nick Willis, two medals in the 1500, as well as Greg Meyer, um, Boston Marathon champion. Um, so, and then you know across the board, all Americans and Big Ten champions and whatnot. So um, I had the privilege to to walk onto the team when I was an undergraduate and be here for Ron's last couple of years. And it was that was truly a you know one of the most important formative experiences of my life. Was I feel like it was it was a you know all of the academics and science you know side of it you get that, but but. Studying under Ron or learning by observation, you know, was was truly um, it was it was like like learning the artistic side of it,
1: yeah. <laughs> studying
2: from an artist.
1: Well, and that's one thing that I appreciate about you. Um, you've got a background in engineering, um, and you're studying kinesiology and biomechanics, but um, you write. Like someone who you write like an artist, not like a scientist, and that's that's meant to be a compliment to both scientists and artists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, you're capable of writing uh, in in scientific genres as well. But um, one of the reasons we wanted you to be on the show was because of a couple of articles that you've written. But one of them, particularly uh, entitled "Trading Souls for Souls," um, on your on your own website, um, that was a thing of beauty. And um, I was an English major, one of the many liberal arts majors that I was once <laughs> a part of. Um, and, and have at least been taught how to appreciate um, good writing and, and you're a good writer. So thank you and congratulations.
2: <laughs> thank, you. thank you. That, that actually really means a lot. It's write, Writing is one of my passions and I don't, I don't get to do it enough. And it's like, when I have to write scientifically, it feels like pulling teeth <laughs> for, for journal articles and I do it's it's my preferred form of expression and so that that compliment really does mean a lot so thank you
0: awesome I wonder uh you know for people out there just kind of set the scene a little bit um, would you be able to kind of put some words and describe um what what it is that you do today so like um uh you know what you what are your PhD is about and um and maybe a little bit about how that might relate to to runners generally around
2: Yeah, definitely. So, um, as Jacob mentioned, I, uh, study running biomechanics and my thesis is on, um, modeling runners as systems. And I'm focused on what's called the spring mass system. So that is the simplest, simplest system that can describe the physics of a runner. And the, what underlies it is what's called the spring-loaded inverted pendulum, and that's a really fancy way of saying a pogo stick. So this pogo stick is just a mass that bounces along on a spring, and it has the fewest degrees of freedom. So those are essentially the number of variables. Fewest degrees of freedom that describe running, which is forward motion with a flight phase and a stance phase. So my thought is rather than the traditional... Um, route of biomechanical analyses, kinematics, where we put markers all over people and measure all sorts of different variables, I wanted to find a way to model us as very simple systems, how all of these things interact together and collapse down. So rather than studying all of the individual instruments in an orchestra or even the strings on the violin, try and capture a way to understand how the viola, cello, bass, violin are all playing together. And so this system, this, this spring mass model has four variables, the stiffness of the spring, the angle it hits the ground, the length of it, and the contact time that it's that it's in, in with the ground. So with those four variables, you can capture the salient physics of each individual runner. So that's the background. My specific work is coming up with a way to take just the force that you put into the ground, just the ground reaction force, and estimate those four variables simultaneously. So we have ways of doing very rough calculations on some of them, and we make assumptions like leg length and approximations of that angle. Um, But I wanted a way to make no assumptions about your system, just take it blindly and just let the data inform those four fundamental parameters of your body so that we can then study how they tune themselves slightly so rather than thinking that you have a constant quote-unquote leg length their center of mass length how does that effective length tune step to step to step how does the stiffness tune step to step to step how does the angle how are these things interacting so that's what my my work was coming up with a mathematical way to do that um, so that was the first piece and then the second piece was applying it to different groups of runners So one project that I'm just finishing up now looked at a group of uh, elite Kenyan runners. And this was in conjunction with the University of Cape Town in South Africa, where they collected all this data. Um, And then with my collaborators, I went and started doing this analysis on it. So we have a group of elite Kenyan distance runners comparing it to just some recreational club runners. And we want to study how do these you know very good fluid runners behave like this very simple system versus you know your standard standard runners (laughs) um because we can you know it's one of those things where with form we all know it's like we we know beautiful form when we see it my my phd advisor has this term i love ocular significance not statistical significance ocular significance um and you know, we can think of East Africans are like the epitome of that, you know, especially Kenyans is they they just have that smooth form. Yet we have a handful of biomechanics studies on them that don't show many changes between kinematic variables between them and, you know, just kind of normal runners. Um, But I wanted a way to say like something is going on systemically here. So the hypothesis was that they behave more like this simple system, all of those variables in their legs and their body collapse down to that, that very simple system and act fluidly together. So with this mathematical method developing, we have now a way to quantify how much they behave like this spring mass system versus the recreational runners. And one of the coolest things was, um, I, have, I have visuals for this. It's, it, it's, it's much easier to show it than to say it, but I'll try. Their, their force, the force that you put into the ground, we call it the ground reaction force, It looks kind of like a giant bell curve. Um, And if you heel strike, you have a little hiccup there. We call it the impact peak. Um, And this spring mass, this simple pogo stick model, its ground reaction force is a perfectly symmetric bell curve and with no no noise going up or down it. And so what we found was the shape of the Kenyan's curves, even when we controlled for foot strike, um, all different conditions, the shape behaved more like this simple system. So their all of their all of their um, body segments were functioning in coordination, collapsing down to this spring much better. Their horizontal and vertical forces were better coordinated, better aligned. Um, so that was the second piece of my work was now applying this method to this group to say like, hey, here's a way to systemically anal- analyze these two runners and see what's going on. Um, And, um, yeah, so that was the next one. And then the final, one of the final pieces is I have an ongoing study called the biomechanics of the sub four minute mile. So, uh, looking at the kinematics, the joint movements, um, kinetics forces and energetics, the oxygen consumption of elite middle distance runners. So guys who have run under four minutes in the mile and I've finished collecting data on those guys. And I'm now, just collecting data on uh, sub five-minute milers as a cohort to compare against. But then I want to use this model to answer the question across a spectrum of paces. How do runners tune those four parameters as we increase from eight-minute mile pace down all the way to four-minute mile pace? How are we adjusting that stiffness, length, angle, um, you know, person to person step to step within paces what are the variances on those values um do they get tighter wider um so really a method to across different people answer questions about you know kind of systemic barometer of how we how we bounce along on the ground
0: yeah there's a lot of like really cool stuff in there (laughs) i was just like writing notes as you were talking (laughs) and uh one of the things that i i found really interesting when i I looked into what you were doing and and started to follow even just on social media what you were up to um was the the way in which you were not just restricting yourself to the lab conditions but you were getting outside and observing and measuring stuff outside um clearly that's kind of a big part of what what you do and how you do it um could you could you uh tell us a bit about that because I saw some stuff that you posted where um you know obviously some of the some of the uh, elite guys in the local area or, or what have you, you know, I, I think I saw them running on a track and you were kind of working with them on a track. Like, is, is that kind of a key? Is that part of your, your, uh, your project work as well is, is like when these guys are in town, you, you, you take that opportunity to measure them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I haven't, none of my dissertation work specifically is going to be field based, but I really like all of this is setting it up in the lab with my ultimate goal to be able to go out in the field and do this. Because at the end of the day, like that's, that's what matters. And that's where the richest data is, is what we're doing outside. Um, so I, I have done, like I had one study where we'd use just cadences and set frequencies, um, at the hundred K world championships to study how those change throughout a race. But then also... Is
1: this, is this the one... I don't mean to interrupt, but is this the one that you were running in or... Um,
2: yeah, this- I was in the race and that, that's how I was able to... Um, uh, I guess it gave me gave me the credibility to reach out to all of the participants and ask them <laughs> to be in the study.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I failed to mention any of that in the intro, but um, Jeff is a quite humble but very accomplished ultra runner. So not only did he run for a... a a middle distance powerhouse uh, at the University of Michigan, or a distance powerhouse. He he has extended those distances and and has dominated on the national and world level um, in the ultra running um, distances. So um, now now Definitely. you can t- talk more about your study at the 100k <laughs> World Championships. Where were you fifth there, or yes. what was the, yep. yeah? That's, okay, so yeah, there you go. <laughs>
2: But yeah, so that was that was one where we we looked at um, we got the just the cadence tracks from from the uh, all the watches because you know now our watches have accelerometers in them, which is awesome and I think a really untapped resource to study how something as you know I like I like step frequency as well because it's another one of those I would say quote unquote systemic variables. It's a it's a product of everything going on in your biomechanics. Um, so we just looked how that. You know, when when we got to the race is funny story is it's a totally flat 10 by 10 kilometers. So it's a 10 kilometer loop that you do 10 times. And I get there. And the first thing I think of is like, as a scientist, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is the most beautiful repeated measures design. I have to find <laughs> out. Um, so that's where I came up with the idea of, of getting cadence from, from the watches. And it, and it did, it truly panned out to be an awesome study because it's like, we had official race splits. We had the tracks. We could line them up with the Garmin um, from the, from the data from the watches and just monitor how these things changed or didn't throughout the race. Um, So that's one that, you know, I've done in the field, but then to the original question uh, about working with guys that when they're in town. um, So a lot of the guys, when they've come through, if they've been uh, subjects in, in the study, um, especially the middle distance guys, because we do have, you know, especially with Nick Willis in town, who's um, uh, somebody I get to run with a fair amount and bounce ideas off of. But he has a lot of guys coming through, training partners and whatnot. Um, they will come into the lab and we'll record them here, but then I'll go out and if they're down at the track working out, I'll go down and talk to Ron and we'll, we'll talk shop with biomechanics there. I would love to then, I mean, so that's from a very, I would say, Qualitative standpoint, but I'll take videos and stuff so we can then go back and review them and and work with them on that side. Um, so that's that's kind of more of a one-on-one thing. Um, but then I would also love to to work into a way because it's like again, I'm sure you know this with RunScribe, but we have we have so much ridiculous technology now that we can use. Like our iPhones have 240 frames per second cameras. That's lab grade. You know, like, <laughs> Like so, I, I like my mind is always spinning with with them. Is like, how can we how can we like leverage this just easy easy technology to answer cool questions? What I'm really excited is our, our indoor our new indoor track building um, has force plates embedded in oh. uh, one of the uh, practice lanes going around the track. So wow. actually, in my original um, IRB um, review board application for the sub force study, I put in a um, a big section on doing the entire same thing as the study but in the building there because like we use IMU's inertial measurement sensors for motion capture so we could go to the track and and do it remotely and have them run on the force plates so it's like totally field-based That's something again like all these things I I would love to do in the future um once I once I finish this dang thesis (laughs) but yeah so try and try and I try my my mind is always on how I can take what I'm doing to the field, because that at the end of the day, is not just what's most interesting to runners, but what's actually useful, because at the end of the day, like, everything that goes on the lab, if we don't have a way of getting it out on the roads, it's not helpful.
0: Yeah, Now we've got some notes that we wrote down here on the paper and um, you, you won't be surprised to know <laughs> that uh, the hot like kind of like in, in, in the large letters is, um, is is sort of shoe design, shoe development and, 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 uh, and obviously a lot of um, the evolution around uh, shoes. We had a chat in our previous podcast with, we're lucky with uh, Alex Hutchinson and uh, he was kind of giving more of a journalistic, you know, opinion on uh, what he'd seen. But clearly, you know, the work you're doing has a direct linkage into um into how you know how how shoes operate and what shoes can do in terms of affecting affecting the runner so so is that something that's part of comes into your studies at all when when you're looking at when you're doing some kind of controlled test experiment with a runner how what do you do with the footwear do they wear like control footwear or do you kind of like Play around with the footwear. What, what role does that play in your in your studies?
2: Yeah, it depends on the study. So, like with my um, my middle distance runners, that study, I have them wear uh, racing flats. So something very, very minimal, something that they they'll be in the same shoe across all the paces, but it has very minimal effect. We always restrict people from having any sorts of like orthotics or inserts in them. Um, so that's one where have them in shoes, in their preferred shoes, because the the research question we're asking is how do these things change within you? We want this to be you know representative of your most natural mechanics. Um in the study with the Kenyan runners and the recreational runners, we took data in both barefoot conditions and then their habitual shoes. In other studies um we've done we've had very we've had set control shoes that we have in the lab. Um, and, yeah, so it, it kind of gets back to with what research question you're asking, um, what what you want it to represent, what variables you want to control, and what should be uncontrolled, um, or you know natural natural to the runner. Um, but then getting back to the the actual model that I'm doing, one of the parallel things that I'm really curious about how, you know that I think is is a really exciting application to this this technique that I've worked on is the footwear question getting back to those those four fundamental variables and tuning that system you can you know we can naturally now start asking really interesting footwear questions how do we tune our system in different shoe conditions do we adjust stiffness of our body and and alter that effective length and angle we hit the ground or do those length and angles does that stay the same and we are tuning the stiffness or do they all change and reorganize themselves so the footwear track is something i really really want to explore a lot more um because i think it is you know as runners we're we're <laughs> we're connoisseurs of footwear right like we that's that's our one piece of technology i guess maybe you know maybe your shirts or shorts i'm very picky about my shirts and shorts too but <laughs> we're, it's such a it's such a limited like you know we have, we have so few bells and whistles, the few bells and whistles we have, we've become very intimate with them, <laughs> but it's interesting because any changes in those then do bring out, you know, large changes in, um, whether it's, you know, mechanics or comfort preference, things like that. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just to explain for some of the viewers out there um, who sort of picturing some of this and making visual pictures in their heads as, as we yeah. talk, um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of what happens in a mechanical system of the body, mm-hmm. um, and, and in sort of cl- classical um, uh, Newtonian physics, then um, then we often, I guess, re- we reference the center of mass of the of the body in terms right. of how how we move things and around. And, um, and so, when you're talking about effective length of that sort of leg lever, essentially, if someone did a squat and sort of flex the knees, that kind of thing, that would reduce that effective length.
2: Yep, exactly. So you can think of it as, yeah, your center of mass. Um, so, so yeah. So when you, when you squat down that effective length, you know, decreases, you decrease that, that leg length. So the idea is when somebody runs, um, there's this assumption that you have a constant leg length, that if we think of this pogo stick that bounces along, you're that lever arm from your center of mass, if you think of the center of mass is maybe right around your pelvis, this big mass, there's yeah, there's that lever that hits the ground. But when it hits the ground, that compression um, is changes the length of it functioning like a spring. So it then goes back. Whereas when you're saying you squat down, you are not that is yeah reducing the length of it but not storing it as elastic energy um but yeah so so the idea is that when we run we have this effective length from our from our center of mass that is our lever and kind of systemic and the common assumption is that it's about the length of your leg um but when we look at ourselves as systems slight changes from that on the order of a couple centimeters have enormous difference on these other parameters Um, and that was one of the things I wanted to get back and study is like how even, you know, step to step, if that effective length is changing by a few centimeters, um, that, that has a big effect on how you're striking the ground and interacting with the ground. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things, um, we, we do get questions like coming in from, uh, from some of the people that listen and, and of course, um, we're really cognizant of the fact that, um. They haven't had the training and, uh, and the education in the specific field that, that the, our guests like you have had, of course. And um, uh, w- one of the classic questions that just comes up all the time, of course, um, especially from people kind of new into running and they've read some stuff in the magazines and things, you know, it comes back to this whole foot strike thing. And, um, you know, we, we could ask this question to a number of our, our guests that come on the podcast. But I feel like I've got to take this opportunity because it's something that you just kind of do week in, week out. Um, you mentioned about, you know, with the guys in Africa, kind of like, you know, um, taking sort of re- removing the effects of, of people having different, uh, foot strikes, yeah. um, and, and biasing the data. What's your kind of take from, from what you've seen, um, from being a runner yourself as well. Um, you know, we've had this, like, I don't know what to call it, like kind of, a, sort of, uh, phase or trend, like in the past of people, people on the kind of street level, You know, like beginner to intermediate runners getting really scared about the heel strike, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, what's uh, um, you know, clearly, clearly, it's going to have some effect on this on this nice smooth force uh, bell curve. But like, what's your uh, both from your kind of personal running um, uh, perspective, but also uh, scientific perspective? What's your take on the whole kind of like forefoot, midfoot, um, heel? striking and like uh, and and how that affects things um in terms of in terms of gait and and how the person runs
2: yeah great question um and you're right it is it is this like thing that is burning and like a lot of people think like like saying like i'm a heel striker is like some sort of like personal failure (laughs) not at all i will say (laughs) right now if you are a heel striker be proud it's okay it's normal (laughs) like Heel striking versus forefoot striking. Even if you look at indigenous societies, like there's been cool anthropometric or not anthropometric um, anthropological studies of you know still functioning in indigenous societies looking at footwear there, or foot strike there. Heel striking is normal in habitually habitually shod barefoot habitually barefoot communities. Like it's 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 normal. It's it's like the human body is designed to do that. <laughs> um, I would say. Also, do not try to change your foot strike. Maybe there are some um, exceptions to that, but the vast majority of people should not try to change their foot strike. Um, But what what you can do is, I think, and this this is what's really important, is not all heel strikes are created equal and not all forefoot strikes are created equal. You can have extremely efficient heel striking um, and efficient, not just energetically, but, um, in terms of coordinating the energy transfer through the gate cycle, somebody who heel strikes, but does it very quickly and efficiently and under their center of mass, um, that, that, that will be, you know, that's, that's fantastically efficient. Um, you know, somebody similarly can be a four-foot striker and, you know, overstride or, or have high braking forces or something like that. Um, so that's, that's what I would say is, is, you know, even looking at like some of those Kenyans we had in the study, um, about half of them were forefoot strikers and half of them were, were rear foot strikers and the rear foot strikers were very efficient with their foot strike. And, And when I say efficient, I mean, not just, you know, shorter contact times, but the energy, the, the coordination through, you know, the vertical and horizontal forces Um, spring mass behavior like that was, was very, very clean. And that was, that was one of the really exciting findings of that study was even when I took, uh, you know, two rear foot strikers, the rear foot strikers in the Kenyan group had a, a ground reaction force curve that was much more similar to this simple system, which meant that they were still, even though it was rear foot strike still very efficiently moving their body over it. So, so yeah, I would say it's, um, to anybody listening that, that is worried about their foot strike, don't, don't focus on changing your foot strike, focus on becoming more efficient with your mechanics. And that comes from not thinking about changing how your limbs move, but just asking your limbs to do things that demand more efficiency, i.e., doing hill sprints or just sprints in general um, plyometrics, stuff like that. I think the more, the more you stress your body with a diversity of challenges, it responds as such. And that's one of the reasons why, whether you run ultra marathons or middle distances, speed work is one of the most important things you can do because it tells your body to, it, it asks your body to function more efficiently, mechanically. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, getting back to foot strike, I would say, don't change your foot strike, maybe change your training. And
3: yeah. it's uh, interesting. As,
2: as, as a, as a parallel track, one of, there is actually some interesting research now showing that, um, neither, neither of those foot strike patterns is inherently, neither of them is necessarily preventative of injuries, but certain, but, um, certain ones are better for certain injury types. So Forefoot striking seems to lessen some of the loads on the knees, whereas heel striking lessens the loads on the calves and the Achilles. So mm-hmm. for people who are really prone to those problems, that can maybe be a way to modulate those. Um, but that, again, you would want to do that under guided, a guided professional. Um, mm-hmm. And the other the other thing too that I think is also another potential like area for exploration is um, you know, changing, if you change up your foot strike almost, but treating it out, treating it like a drill, like, you know, like say I'm going to do plyometrics, like high knees or butt kicks or bounds. I'll only do it for 50 meters, stop, rest, go back. I've always thought it could be a good training tool to like somebody's running to just consciously forefoot strike for, say I'm a heel striker, consciously forefoot strike for a minute at a time and do that six or seven times in a run, like, like a drill, not try and do it as long as you can until you tire and injure yourself. Um, but if you do that, you could find that after a couple of weeks of doing that a few times a week in the run, you become a more efficient heel striker. And that essentially demands variability of your gait pattern, which can then make you stronger and more robust, more resilient. Um, so it's something that you can spice in things like that, but, Biomechanics. There's there's this concept of a preferred movement path, and our muscles, our musculoskeletal structures, and you know tendons, ligaments, bones, all of these things are structured to in, interact in ways that are very much like a fingerprint. And and I would I would caution anybody from trying to change their fingerprint substantially. You can yeah. improve it, make it more efficient, but I would say overhaul is not a good idea. <laughs>
0: it's really interesting i mean uh, um 2 or 3 days a week i work in a clinic and uh, <laughs> and uh, so i end up you know i do gait analysis with people that walk into the clinic and they got various injury problems or they're just trying to prevent injury and um and it's really interesting you know you watch somebody sometimes and and they have this kind of really artificial kind of uh, four foot strike going on it's very very obvious you know visually at 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 normal running pace and you know afterwards you say to them hey like you you you're really quite aggressive on the forefoot strike here. Um, Have you always done this? (laughs) And and, uh, probably about like two-thirds of the time you know they turn around and say no 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 i used to be a heel striker but um but you know like i was talking with my buddies and, <laughs> and i was reading i was reading this magazine and um, i read a book called born to run yeah exactly yeah and then and then they're like yeah and so about six months ago i, I just started changing i became a, a foot striker <laughs> and, and you know you're sort of there kind of scratching your head thinking okay <laughs> all right um okay yeah. and then some um, you know, sometimes sometimes you kind of like test them back at like at their normal uh, natural way of striking the ground, and um, but it's interesting how how powerful that message, whether interpreted cor- correctly or not by the public, how powerful that message became over the years. Yeah,
2: like, and and I think it's one of those things where it's like it's because it came with anecdote, <laughs> like really compelling anecdote, and I you know we. <laughs> One of my favorite sayings in science is the plural of anecdote is not data. um But you know, it's like the, <laughs> you go go and ask the guy you see in the clinic, like, "Oh, yeah, this is great. I'm a four foot striker now." It's like, okay, well, let's go, let's let's talk to each other at mile twenty two of the marathon and see what's going on with those structures. Like, <laughs> I want see your mechanics then. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's one of the things that really corrupts a lot of studies and and especially clinical practice is when you only mm at somebody for 10 to 15 minutes at a time or you know like that or, or say like you have somebody it's like here do this change while i'm watching you
3: yeah hmm. they can hold it
2: yeah. while they're under you know under supervision but if they're not consciously doing that it it will revert and then moreover when they're fatigued it'll definitely revert <laughs> so i think you know after an hour you know, we'll see if you can keep doing that um so that's that's one of the things that i think uh people should definitely be aware of (laughs) because yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, getting, getting to mechanics, like forefoot striking is, is, you know, for something like middle distance running is really important. So I guess getting back to like, you know, if somebody should change their forefoot strike or anything um, you look at like elite middle distance runners. So most of the guys that I've had come through here, yeah, those guys are four foot striking, but that's a demand of their event because they need to be able to transition to, you know, basically aerobic sprinting. Um, whereas, like a marathoner, it's it's really it like if you're running a marathon, there's a really good chance that you probably can't do it four foot striking. Um, there was a nice study at the 2017 London World Championships that showed, I think it was like 70. 70 plus percent of the racers at the world championship in the marathon were heel strikers, including like almost all of the top 10. Um, so like I said, there's no, you know, there's no right or wrong. You can be a very efficient heel striker and you can be an inefficient forefoot striker. But I think when, once you get to the extremes of, of the events, um, you then maybe, like I said, like middle distance stuff, you need it. Um, but, Oh, what I was gonna <laughs> before I went down that rabbit hole. I was gonna say, I think I remember Geber Selassie when he switched to the marathon, because he had a very um very pronounced four foot strike, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you walked on a 10K, the dude looked like the dude was sprinting a 10K. Yeah. Uh, yeah. he got injured in his, you know, his early marathon career and he had to he had to consciously actually adjust his his stride to land a little bit more midfoot so it wasn't so much work being done by his calves, maintaining that tension, um, just because it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't sustainable. And I think um, and Bekele had the had the same thing. Um, so yeah. so it's certainly event specific, but but generally think but generally for most people out running for fitness, um, probably bad news to try and overhaul it
1: <laughs> without going too far down this rabbit hole. I, I would also say that, Um, many, even elite distance runners are, are kind of genetically predisposed to one or the other. There are very few people that can be world-class milers and then world-class marathoners. There are some like Kipchoge has gone from the five and the 10 and and Turgot and Geverslossian, but even Farah and, um, I think. Prior to those guys, Steve Jones was like the, the only one who ever went from like being a great miler to being an extraordinary marathoner. Um, whereas I,
2: Rod Dixon won, uh, um, uh, was a, maybe a 5,000 guy on the track who, um, I don't, he never had an Olympic I think he was, he fourth at the Olympics, but he was one of the best 5,000 runners in the world
1: um,
2: in the mid seventies. And then, um, Won won the New York City Marathon as his like consolation for having a really disappointing Olympic uh, (laughs) in Montreal. Yeah, yeah.
1: no, I mean it. It certainly happens. I I was thinking more the spread of fifteen hundred mile to marathon. It can happen. It's it's, mile is. It seems to be. I know it's not. It is an aerobic event, but but there tends to be some some more fast twitch in there than um than in the marathon, but. The yeah. changing obviously um and uh and people are getting faster um a, a few things that came to mind while, while you were talking um was had to do in part with with footwear and kind of the footwear revolution um that some some shoe brands um have specifically come about uh kind of as a as a response to the demand that's come out to, to get people on their forefeet um, or forefoot. Um, In fact, you and I have been running for a brand that came out of that (laughs) crucible uh, for ultra running for quite some time. Um, And it's how we met Um, just, just for context. I, I had followed um, Jeff as a, as a fan um, and we were both supposed to run JFK and, uh, let's see and jeff uh jeff wasn't able to race but you were already there and and you just like jumped in at the last minute and helped crew for me um specifically helped helped me move from one zero drop shoe to another zero drop shoe halfway through the race uh but um but another one of the reasons we wanted to have you on not just because we're teammates and because you're really smart and fast um was that um you are a scientist, and you take your science seriously, and um, and that's one thing we pride ourselves on with the show, and as coaches, and and it and it's something that um, we actually discussed before the show, but it's something we struggle with at times um, because we want to make sure that the the people that we work with know that we are authentic and we're not in the back pocket of some shoe company or nutrition company or something like that. But um, you know, I am a coach and an athlete, and I and I do, um, represent certain brands, um, as do you. Um, but, um, we talked a little bit, um, beforehand about, um, a decision that you made, uh, recently, uh, with regard to that, to maintain your objectivity once you defend your thesis and, um, are a doctor of biomechanics and kinesiology. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that decision and, and where that places you professionally, um, as a scholar, but also as a, and as a scientist, but as a runner as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So moving forward in 2020, as you mentioned, for the last, last few years, uh, I've run for ultra running um, zero drop shoe company. And, you know, I've I've loved their products, done logged many thousands of miles in them. Um, But I always, it's funny when I, when I signed my first contract with them, it's one of those things where it's like, signing a professional contract as a runner and it should be this thing like, oh my gosh, I made it. But it it in many ways was was really like an uncomfortable thing for me because running, as I said at the beginning, it's my one true love and it's it's my passion. And it suddenly felt like I was mixing business with pleasure. <laughs> um and and you know with running contracts, a lot a lot of people um for me, it's running was never at all about money or, or financial incentives on any side of it. Um, and the, like the flip side of it is like, you need to fund yourself to do it. Like if you want to travel to races or, or even as simple as <laughs> going through many, many pairs of shoes. Um, so that was something that, you know, they supported me and helped me you know, get around the world and, and race at all these races. Um, but when I was working professionally as an engineer, I was, flipping the bill for that stuff myself. And, and it was a financial hit, but it was, it felt like it was very, like, it was just, everything was on me. Everything was an investment in that joy. And whether, you know, whether I succeeded or failed was all, you know, I owned it. I owned every aspect of it. And I, I loved that independence and and it truly felt like a very authentic relationship with the sport. And once, once I brought in sponsorship side of it, even though I love the company and love the product, it still felt weird to, to be financially and, and contractually tied to, you know, both a product and also a certain image. Um, so it, it very much muddied, muddied this interaction that I had with this thing that I loved. Um, and even even as simple as things like, you know, having an, in contracts performance bonuses I hate that that about the sport of running. I think it's one of the worst things running, you know, for most people who don't don't know this, a lot of professional running, like the, the lion's share of contracts is based on performance bonuses. And this is actually different than most other sports. Um, even like professional cycling, one of our closest analogs, most of those guys might have small bonuses for really big races, but generally they're salaried employees for their teams. And I think the performance bonus structure is just, like, to me, that was one of the, like, most corrupting things for the relationship with the sport I hated seeing these dollar figures attached to the goals that I loved and held dear to my heart, where I was like, I looked at them, like, I would pay that amount to accomplish that, like, <laughs> then, like you know, if, if I had that sub. <laughs> um, like, to me, like, by then, you know, monetizing these results, I think it, I think it creates a really inauthentic um, at least for me, it was relationship with that outcome where it made running a means to an end rather than the end in itself. So this was something that just created a lot of anxiety in me. And, and I wanted, you know, now that moving forward next year, like once I graduate and I'll hopefully be able to, you know, I probably won't be able to go to as many races as I want, but it'll go back to being, um, back to being kind of the the thing that I love. And I, I mean, like I said, I, I love the shoes, you know, that ultra makes and I probably will still continue to log thousands of miles in them. Um, but, but yeah, so it'll be that. And then, you know, that's all personally. And I think this goes hand in hand with it, but as a scientist, I really, I, I feel uncomfortable being contractually bound to, a you know, a shoe company. And if I'm going to be doing any sort of biomechanics research that involves footwear, that's now a conflict of interest I have to disclose. Um, But, you know, also selfishly, it would preclude me from working with other shoe companies, you know, contractually, which then that would still be a conflict of interest. But I think it would be more of a professional relationship with a shoe company than a, um, you know, an athletic one. So having that freedom, freedom to praise, as well as freedom to critique is something that I really, really cherish in myself and, and want. And that's what getting back to. So, yeah, so 2020 and beyond, I will be going back to being, being a blue collar.
1: <laughs> I love it. Um, and, and appreciate it. Um, I know that, you know, you are authentic and and you would do your level best to, to speak truth to whatever it is that we're talking about. And, and I feel like you have been, This episode of the Art and Science of Running podcast is brought to you by The Feed. The Feed is an online sports nutrition store based out of Boulder, Colorado. The Feed offers a large variety of sports nutrition products, recovery tools, and supplements for endurance athletes. As an Art and Science of Running podcast listener, you're invited to become a Feed VIP and receive 15% off all your orders. That's 15% all of your orders. To become a Feed VIP, please visit clubs.thefeed.com forward slash artsciencerun. Don't worry. If you can't remember it, we're going to put the link in the show notes, but that's clubs.thefeed.com forward slash art science run to receive 15% off all your orders at the feed. Thanks again to the feed for supporting this episode. In this, in this ongoing shoe debate, um, about some of the newer technologies. And I don't feel like it's coming from a place of us versus them. It's coming from a place of objectivity and of, of science. Um, i I even appreciate that you've expressed ambivalence towards some of the (laughs) the hype that things have um have got received but um you 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 have talked um a bit or you you've written and discussed um a a goal of regulating um
2: yeah the
1: the innovations or the at, at least the stack height um of of shoes and um so we can We can go back if we need to, but, um, do you want to, I guess we're specifically talking about, uh, the latest technologies with Nike vapor flies, um, and, or four percents and next percents and then alpha flies, um, We've talked about it on this show before, um, but and and we actually mentioned you specifically as, as someone, uh, one of the the voices um, in the discussion. Uh, but but we wanted to have you on specifically to discuss um, both your proposal of regulation and 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 why. So,
2: yeah. So what our proposal was was just a simple midsole thickness limit. So say. Footwear fo- you can make anything you want under the sun any any sort of energy return any construction but just in a specified a, a spec- a specific space um that is you know every we all know what stack height is on a shoe or you know if 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 our listeners don't know or the listeners don't know um mm-hmm. it's that you know the thickness of the midsole and most you know you'll find it listed anywhere online of you know running shoe companies and whatnot um, but yeah, it's the thickness of the midsole and most, most marathon racing flats for a long, long time were on the order of 20 to 25 millimeters. And that was where the vapor fly, or I guess stepping back even further, you know, Hoka's business model, um, you know, rocked the world almost a decade ago when they came out with these maximal shoes and those have very thick, high midsole thickness stack heights. Um, and that was when the vapor fly came out that was the thing that jumped out, um, for anybody who's seen one or held one in person. To me, that was the most striking thing was, oh my gosh, this thing is so thick. Like it's actually, I believe it's thicker than all Hoka models, except maybe the Bondi, which is Hoka's thickest one. Um, so it's, it's an enormously thick shoe. Um, but it gets back to the importance of how the shoe functions. And, and I don't know, you know, if you guys have, Uh, how deeply you've covered that in past episodes, but it it really is this system of components, this foam that's incredibly light, but ultra resilient. That means it's much lighter than traditional foams and costs less energy to carry, but also returns more energy. So because of those things, you can add a lot more of it to the leg. Um, Then you can stick a plate through it, stiffen it up, which gives stability to the foam, and also changes the mechanics of the, the MTP joint under the ball of the foot. Um, all of these things, you know, function. But but what the crux of that is? All of that is only allowed because of this mo- this greater and greater real estate of the shoe. We're extending we're extending extending the effective leg length of the runner, um, giving more and more real estate. So thought really, you know, as soon as the shoe came out, you started hearing all sorts of, you know, things of like, ah, we need to ban it. We need to ban plates and shoes. We need to do this. I thought like, okay, we need to step back here because we really have, in essence, two questions. One, should we regulate footwear at all? And two, if so, how should we regulate it? And I thought like, in order to have a productive debate about that first question, which is a separate debate, we need to have a really good answer to that second question because other, otherwise it's going to be a really messy debate across the board with irrational proposals, people distracting with, you know, different types of arguments. So if, if we're half of us is arguing shoes shouldn't be regulated, others are arguing it should be regulated, but it should be energy return or it should be, you know, plates, we need to... We need to line up a really good regulatory strategy first and then decide whether or not we want to regulate. Because they're two separate questions. So I thought, okay, the best, you know, what's the best way to regulate this? One, you need something that I think really captures that systemic function of a shoe. You know, no one component is necessarily mechanically, you know, the catch-all. So I think any any mechanical, you know any mechanic mechanics level regulation on function, I think is just a bandaid approach um, piecemeal Two, it needs to be enforceable. Like say we ban plates and shoes. Now we have to MRI shoes. Like what, (laughs) what race has the money to do that? Maybe, maybe a world marathon major could CT the shoes of the top finishers. But you want to take like a local marathon, who's not, who's not going to pay, a thousand dollars to have doping control, like let alone, you know, a couple thousand dollars <laughs> to, to get a, a, an image of the shoe. So yeah. So plates. And then, then you could get into the argument of like, okay, we're banning plates. Like how much plate? 90% of the shoe, 75% of the shoe. Does it have to be carbon fiber? Can it be, you know, some sort of other fiberglass, but not carbon fiber. Could it be, you know, some sort of epoxy or what, like then it's just like enormous rabbit hole of, questions there. And then like the energy return side, if you want to regulate energy return, now we have to send shoes to a lab, like, like, or, you know, now we have to come up with a test of energy return. What's a good value? What, you know, anyways, so, and, you know, laboratory conditions, these change like thing to thing to thing. And it's like, do we have to, uh, so I think a lot of hairy things there. So one, it's again, piecemeal approach, lots of questions, but two, it has to be enforceable. It has to be, enforceable and actionable right so getting back to this idea of you know band-aid approaches like also again mri ct and shoes no way sending shoes to a world athletics lab no way like that i mean right now and that's what swimming has to do where they send suits to a FINA lab and they measure buoyancy permeability check textiles all of those things and I, I, that would just be an absolute disaster for running because running is the ultimate Democrat democratization of sport. It's the thing that we can get on a starting line and any person on that line can win. And any person is a participant in the race. So, I mean, I think to have some sort of, you know, regulation where shoes have to go to a lab that would just no way non-starter Two, it would actually open up the Avenue for cheating even more because I mean, we saw this at the 2016 Olympics. The Vaporfly mm-hmm. prototype were resold to look like the Nike streak, but they had the the Vaporfly sole on them. Like if if suddenly we have energy return limits, like now, now we can have real mechanical doping. I don't like that term in used with the shoes now because they're I mean, I guess you could make the argument they're not, but they're they are technically legal. Um, it's, it's arguable that they technically are legal by the IAAF rules. And so like mechanical doping, no good. I don't like that term, <laughs> but, but if we ha- now had a case where we restricted energy return on shoes, um, now you actually could have that where, where you could, I mean, all foams look alike. So you could have these like magical, you know, foam shoes. So again, that would just be a non-starter, not good. So we need something that's really easy to enforce, um, doesn't involve sending labs to shoes you know whatnot and most most importantly is um, not fragile to future innovations because if we start doing piecemeal band-aids, like if you now have a case where the governing body, that sets precedent for the future where if we can now just ban things that are advantageous in a shoe, a carbon fiber plate, if another company makes some stride forward and the competitor, you know, is, has world athletics or IAAF in their pocket, (laughs) which, you know, sad to say through the history of the sport is true. At, At one point it was Adidas, you know, now Nike has a much more significant role. So these things change through generations, but, you know, significant influence of a company is a real thing. And if we start banning, you know, component level regulations, that sets precedent, I think for undue influence by a company. So having a very broad-based, you know, generic future-proof regulation, I think, is the most, I would say, equitable and um, enforceable. I think I think is the easiest and most natural solution.
3: Moreover, um, more,
2: to just to finish all of that, it has precedent. We already have that rule in high jump and long jump shoes. They set a midsole thickness of nineteen millimeters. Like. It's there. That was done in nineteen in fifty-seven because the the Russian Soviet high jumpers started building up their high jump shoes really, um, and Yuri Stepanov set the world record. I think with his shoes had like a thirty millimeters, three centimeter lift built onto them. They had guys who were jumping with like fifty millimeter shoes. So the IAAF stepped in and said, "We're going to cap it at nineteen millimeters." That regulation has lasted now almost 70 years and has been there. Like, so, I mean, it goes to show that you can do that, draw the line and then just enjoy the sport beneath that line. Because at, at the end of the day, like if we're not racing barefoot, anything's going to be arbitrary. Um, and so if we just do it now and define the, the idea behind this midsole thickness regulation is that it defines the space on an athlete that is a shoe. Right. So it it mm-hmm. says, it says, we all are going to be wearing shoes. Your shoe can extend this distance from your body. If it's thirty millimeters, if it's forty, say it's forty millimeters to include the vapor flies. Now, anything within forty millimeters, do whatever you want. Because um, this is something we should clarify too. Like, as long as there are no energy sources in a shoe, like a battery with you know a motor or something, it's all passive. So there's no energy. You can't have any generation the best thing you could possibly have is a perfectly elastic element that has a hundred percent energy return and is almost infinite or, you know, infinitesimally light, lightweight. That would be the ideal thing. We're very far from that, but the Vaporfly moved much closer to that than other shoes. But the idea being this space on our foot is, you know, let's optimize within that space. What is a shoe? Um, it would prevent us from, evolving into really really long extensions of our legs um uh, at some point at some point there is an optimal distance from the leg like i don't think you as you get longer and longer leg lengths you incur um, among other things let's let's imagine hypothetically we keep weight constant which is impossible obviously as you extend the length you need to extend it with material Um, but at, say we had an ultralight material that had nearly negligible weight as we got longer and longer, what happens mechanically is there's what's called a stabilization cost. So both in swinging your limb, as well as landing, um, that longer and longer leg incurs a greater and greater cost to stabilize. So the optimality is not just getting longer and longer legs to take these huge long bounding strides. Um, and storing and releasing tons and tons of energy with it, with each stride, um, you have some point that has this optimal length. But my fear and suspicion is that it's quite a bit longer than what shoes are now, and we saw that with Kipchoge's Alpha flies at the one fifty nine attempt, um, which were like the Vapor flies, but I mean, looked like maybe almost a centimeter, maybe more, thicker. Um, and so you could start to see this leg length creeping up and, you know, some people you could take your imagination to even be like almost like carbon fiber blades or something extending. I don't know if that would be feasible, but this idea with a midsole, you know, thickness regulation, if somebody wanted to have blades on the bottom of their foot, Great, do it, but keep them within the limit that we set.
0: The proposal that you put forward, I'm, I'm right in saying that went to um, went to the journal in, in the UK. Is that right? The, um, the medical yeah, journal.
2: What we, we swung for the fences on that one because we said the you know the most widely read sports medicine, sports science journal in the world is the British Journal of Sports Medicine, um, and a lot of times when we have controversial issues, whether it's Um, you know, Pistorius back, um, when that was going through, they've published a lot of opinions and thoughts on things like the, um, DSD cases with Castor Semenya. Um, so we thought this is, this is the voice, um, of sports science that, that we think will get the most attention. And so that's where we wrote it up and submitted it to them. And and luckily they saw the, the value and utility in it as well, um, and put it out. And yeah. got the the goal was was like well, you know I I I'm I'm I don't want to say I'm ambivalent, but I can see I really can see both sides of the argument for regulating and not regulating, and um and I think whatever the IAAF decides to do can live with it. But I thought this was this was what I felt like was best for the soul of the sport, um, and so thought like well. Try and, try and get my voice heard and get the idea out there so that no matter what they decide, at least we can say they had a good option.
0: <laughs> mm. And you came up with, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, was it 31 mil that you came up with? Well, so was it-
2: this was actually, um, we used 31 millimeters in the piece um, as an example, not necessarily, oh, I'm not specifically proposing that. So the 31 millimeters came from the, uh, the original prototypes Um, were measured at that. So the first study done at the University of Colorado, where they measured the energy cost of runners in these shoes, they were using, they're actually using prototypes of the shoe. They weren't using the 4% that was available um, at the retail level. And so they measured it and they measured it at 31 millimeters. Nike listed on their website, the 4% at 31 millimeters. And so with those two pieces, I thought, okay, we should if we're going to say the vapor fly and the piece was originally written at the time of the 4%, the next percent hadn't even been rumored yet. Um, So when we wrote it, we used 31% because the original piece actually didn't even have a thickness recommendation. It just said, whatever, you know, whatever the IAAF thinks is appropriate, set it at that. If they want to use current models, set it at that. If they want to do something more restrictive, set it at that, but just pick a limit. And that's how I feel. as I'm I'm more I'm less less. Um, I, I don't feel strongly about what the absolute number is. Um, more so, just think that you know it'd be good to pick one. <laughs> but so that's where the thirty one came from. Um, I actually think it's quite funny that Nike listed the four percents as thirty one millimeters. And part of me wonders if it was like if it was purely from what the prototypes were and they didn't care. Or if there was something of like masking how thick they actually were, because most independent, like Runners World Shoe Lab, I think, had it at 37 millimeters. Other others, like-
1: <laughs> that's quite a difference. <laughs> yeah. Well- There's a few scientists on their staff as well that might have been able to measure. Um, oh,
2: I'm sure. No, that's
1: I definitely know
2: they know the 4% was quite a bit thicker than 31 millimeters.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was just joking.
3: There yeah, was-
2: yeah. But then um and then the next percent I think is like 39, 40 millimeters. Um so yeah, so I mean if we set it at 40 millimeters and and included all current models, great. Um if if I had my absolute like keys to the kingdom, I think I would set it at like 25 millimeters um and roll back the last couple of years. Because I really do think that it it would really benefit the sport to Mm -hmm. preserve the past you know, four decades rather than the past three years. <laughs> yeah. um, it's
0: interesting because we were talking about that before, uh, when was it? Weeks ago, um, yeah. uh, myself and Jacob were talking about this and I kind of raised the point of the, um, the pretty seminal classic shoe, the Nike um, streak three, you know, the one that had the kind of yeah. tiger stripes on and so many uh, records and races were won in that shoe. And it was like this shoe that when they stopped producing it, everyone was like, I want to, where'd you get them from? Where'd you get them from? Yeah. And that, that shoe had, I can't remember what the, the, the drop was on that, but it was certainly less than 31 for sure. Oh, um, yeah,
2: I think the, the streak six was like 23 millimeters. Um, yeah. Most of them hovered right around 20 to 23, I would say. Um, you know, the, all, the, all the Adidas Adios flats were 24, 25, maybe. Um, yeah. That was very, you know, because what, I mean, what the Vaporfly really did was shift that optimality point of weight and cushioning and energy return. Because EVA, because EVA is so inefficient at returning energy, the optimality mm. function like was heavily favored towards just reducing weight. Um, yeah. so as thin as you could make the shoe while giving a little bit of cushioning was what you wanted to do. The Vaporfly totally shifted that by now having a material that returned much more energy that you put into it, and it was half the density of EVA, so you could have twice the material. And have it weigh the same amount as that 23 millimeter streak. Um, Mm -hmm. So that that was one of the things that you know we talked all about you know all the other sides of this but one of the other aspects that (laughs) this got clipped from you know further discussion of it got clipped from my regulation proposal but one of the things that we don't um, haven't talked a lot about is the fact that these shoes do something that I think is biomechanically really cool but also speaks to its advantage Is that it extends the effective leg length of the runner um, without adding mass so the idea that that the vaporfly is almost 40 millimeters thick but weighs the same as the zoom streak which is 23 millimeters right so say the vaporfly 4 percent before we got to the next percent like say it's 38 millimeters so now for the same weight you have a longer leg right and you now have that longer leg with a material that's nearly perfect, that's that's much more perfectly elastic. So you have this this really really highly resilient elastic element that now has made your effective leg one and a half centimeters longer. So what we know from, um, and we don't really have data on this in humans of because that's that's actually a really challenging thing to do to extend the leg length of somebody, but to control for mass because. You could extend the leg length, but you then, you know, inevitably add mass. So this was, I thought, actually one of the first really nice studies or, you know, demonstrations of what happens when we start to, you know, creep up and extend the length of somebody. Because if we look across the animal kingdom, like outside of just humans, across a big spectrum of leg lengths, we actually see that there's this really beautiful, you um, decreasing cost of transport. So cost of transport, same thing as running economy, essentially. Um, as you get longer and longer legs, so like really, really short, small animals like squirrels have really high costs of transport, whereas really animals with really long legs, like elephants, actually have are incredibly, incredibly efficient. Um, so one of the things that I did was uh, for, the, for the piece, and, and like I said, in the final version of the proposal that went to British Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, we had to clip out a bunch of this, but talked about how if you adapt those models from physiology and say, okay, what energetic savings does one centimeter on the leg give us? And it accounted for a substantial portion of the um, the benefit of the vapor fly, which uh, one and a half centimeters using, again, these physiological models would, would estimate that it would be about um, one and a half to almost 2% improvement in running economy. Again, wow. assuming, assuming um, constant mass. So this idea that you're extending the you know effective leg is a substantial energetic benefit on its own. And then add onto that, you're extending it with a material that does not fatigue. So that's the other crux of this that I think is is an important piece of, you know, especially the the need to regulate is as we add shoe to people. <laughs> so if we have a fifty millimeter shoe, a sixty millimeter shoe, we now have more and more and more of their running performance um, being done by you know being being aided by something that doesn't fatigue. And I think that's that's one of the really important things that we need to think about here is is that. The, you know, our elastic structures in our body function as springs. Our whole body, that underpins my thesis, my dissertation work is how our body functions as a spring. But the, 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 you know, what underlies that though is that there's a cost to that spring, right? So you could think of, say, say if we are a pogo stick that bounces along, that spring on that pogo stick needs, an energy source to function right and that's what our body does we carry an energy cost of bouncing along the you know shoes and non-biological materials do that you know they support that bouncing but don't require a cost to do that so like your achilles tendon stores energy like a spring but it requires your calf muscles to maintain that tension right so Adding these non biological elements to the foot, you now have more and more of your energy recycling done through the gait cycle that's being done by a non human element, right? So that's that's one of the things that I, I, one of the personal like when I look at the sport, that's that's one of the reasons why I, I favor regulation is I don't like more and more of it being done by, um, yeah, non biological leg extensions <laughs>
1: yeah. well and that's that's fair and that makes sense and by extension
3: yeah.
1: um one of the questions that we receive often and that and that some of our listeners have asked us to ask you is um are there any known or foreseeable injury risks because of this leg extension uh, in fact you i'm going to read something that you wrote in your um in your article trading souls, S O U L S for souls, S O L E S. You said, I fear that the distinct mechanical features of the shoe may have consequences. We haven't yet seen unfold. Perhaps such shoe structures might be putting some structures in our legs and feet at risk, either from being overstressed or underworked. Um, And and then you give the example of uh, helmets in football, which at first they weren't even required, but then, once they did become required equipment, um, the the hits became harder, so it may have dulled the, the <laughs> some of the injuries, um, but then it, it led to some significant uh, injuries to the brain uh, rather than just the superficial injuries that people were <laughs> were having before. Um, so, in in the same sense, do you do you feel like these shoes, or are are you aware of any? Any cases where these may either help prevent injury and and actually um, allow people to train more consistently, or on the flip side, do you feel like, are you aware of any cases in which these have actually led to or or where you could could assume based on the data that they might lead to greater injury?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a. Great question, and I think that is the it's the million dollar question right now. Um, that's there. There have been no studies. I mean, the shoe the shoe is so new that I mean we only have really three studies done on the um, energetics of the shoe and 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 the um, very I would call them acute mechanics. And when I say acute, I mean you know the mechanics that happen just when you put the shoes on and run. Um, but we definitely do not have any longitudinal data on the shoes yet. And that's, um, you know, so anything I say is just speculation and hypothesis, but I do firmly believe and, and I hate, I hate using the word fear, but, but it is, it is a fear that, you know, this idea that, you know, one of the distinct things about the shoe is, is that plate and not just the plate, but you know, it's a curved plate. And so the function of the stated function of the shoe is to alter, you know, how the foot interacts with the ground. Um, And so now when we're putting this very stiff plate through um, the shoe, you change the, it's changing how the foot interacts with the ground dynamically and how the foot, changing how the foot interacts with the ground changes how the knee interacts with the ground changes how the hip, you know, it's like all these things, obviously, you know, connected as, as a system, getting back to kind of motivation even for my my dissertation work that idea of capturing all this stuff systemically um but i think getting back even early on in the conversation the question about forefoot strike rear foot strike changing this notion of a habitual movement path right so the vapor fly has one movement path (laughs) has the plate the plate you know constrains the foot of the movement to be in that axis that it is demanding. Um, so I think you're now taking you know, infinitely varied movement paths and constraining them to one trajectory. So that to me is, I think, is going to be enormously varied, how people respond to that. Again, there could be some people that maybe that's beneficial. I don't know. Um, he yeah, be- seemed
1: to hit, help Bakkele. Uh, the last time he wore them, um, he he yeah. was finally the marathoner that everyone hoped he would be.
2: Um, um, that I think was also due to losing like fifteen or twenty pounds and training. Because he had he had been well. This is actually an interesting um, parallel. He had been injured for the better part of two years, which maybe yeah. that was due to you know partially to the shoes, um, but you could also say like you know kind of getting back to a healthier lifestyle helped him kick the injuries as well (laughs) um but but yeah so i mean that's a tough case but then you look at the flip side and and i think of the (laughs) let's say again the plural of anecdote is not data and i'm gonna give a couple anecdotes so this is not data but you know we look at the very elite nike runners who have had access to these shoes longer than anybody and not just access to the shoe but relative unfettered access to do a lot of training in them Mm -hmm. um is, you know, the upper, the upper tier of the, you know, Bowerman Track Club and the Nike Oregon Project. So think Galen Rupp, Jordan Hesse, Amy Craig, Shalane Flanagan, all four of those runners have had substantial injuries, if not career-ending injuries in the last couple of years since running in those shoes.
1: Shalane Shalane just had two surgeries, right? I mean, she's done, but yeah, and 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 Galen did.
2: did Overhauled, Achilles surgery, has had several stress fractures. Um, So I, like... I, do, I I suspect that you know if you race just a marathon in these shoes like that's I, you know that's not going to be injurious on that front um but you suddenly start working backwards in the context of training like okay I'm gonna race a marathon in this shoe I definitely need to do a couple workouts in them then once you start doing workouts in them I think there, <laughs> there, there, well there there could be an element of like, I, I definitely, I've seen, I've definitely seen this in training partners and friends of like, I would say like forbidden fruit creep of like, well, I did a few workouts in them, but like, I run fast in those workouts. So now I want, like, now I want to do most of my workouts in them. Um, and so once it starts to do that, I think is it, you know, could creep into um, more habitual youth, which could have those effects, but it gets back to this idea of, of, constraining the foot to a very very distinct mechanical pattern that it may that it may just place tor- it may place odd torques on somebody's Achilles for somebody it may overstress the knee joint for somebody it may you know overstress the plantar fascia or understress certain things that could be the other thing is now it's doing work here it may shut off function of you know other intrinsic foot muscles or something like that so i think it it plays i mean the, the our legs are are just fascinatingly infinitely complex interactions of structures right and i think this this really d- disrupts that in a both a fascinating way but also in a way that makes me very nervous and then the other aspect of this that i think has the broader impact on the running community that that will that will be the bigger impact for injury risk is just the concept of adding carbon fiber and fiberglass plates to shoes. So even if it's not the vapor fly that, that is detrimental. Um, but if we now start adding plates to shoes because the vapor fly has it and it seeps into footwear, that could be a huge thing. Um, so like, so say somebody now does a lot of their training in the zoom fly or Hoka carbon X or, you know, whatever shoe stock is coming out with, um, all these shoes have plates in them now. Now we are essentially whitewashing the longitudinal axis of that shoe, constraining it to one movement pattern. I think that's really dangerous. It makes me very nervous. It's one of the reasons why I, I, I love, you know, I think midsole foam on its own is is a really nice thing, you know, to run on because it's what we would call um, engineering term. it's an, It's anisotropic. Which means that across all directions, it has the same material properties. So whether you're bending it in half, twisting, torquing, whatever, it's relatively homogeneous. No matter how you torque the shoe, so so no matter what nuanced vectors that somebody's foot hits the ground and hits the shoe, it can interact in in its own way, right? But the plate is highly isotropic, um, meaning that it has high um, uh, like single property in a single direction. Right. Um, and so now all of a sudden, depending on the nuanced angles with which your foot interacts with the ground and the foot or in the shoe, um, you're going to have different responses to it. And, and we see that. in some of the, the few studies that have come out that looked at mechanics is there are individual responses to the shoe. Everybody responds to it but some people respond much more than others. Um, and that's really interesting. Like I think one of the, one of the interesting things that hasn't um, gotten a lot of talk from the original Colorado study was the difference they saw in forefoot strikers and rear foot strikers and that the rear foot strikers saw almost 5% benefit um, on average, which is really, I thought, I, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and then similarly, the BYU study, found that contact time significantly predicted response where people with really short contact time had um, more of an energetic uh, benefit from the view. so so yeah so again, getting back to the injury risk and it's so individualized that the shoe has the shoe has one movement path <laughs> and the world has infinite movement paths and so I think the degree to which it forces you into that, will have interesting and again it makes me nervous um it's yeah so
0: it kind of reminds me of um we had um i i did an episode which we're going to post up probably later on with uh, an episode with uh with ben o'nig in his office oh yeah
2: um, he's the one who coined that term the preferred
0: path yeah 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 and um and he was talking he talks in the episode about his work with on you know the swiss Swiss company and uh and he describes in the in the episode about like the concept behind the clouds and and this kind of localized deformation of the cloud and um and and how that sort of can can naturally uh, work better with uh with how the, how the foot wants to work and um essentially what you're describing is, is the absolute opposite of that <laughs> yeah like, exactly yeah. and that's
2: yeah. what his yeah that again his yeah the preferred movement path stuff that I think is is a really cool concept and and it really like you said, it, it strikes essentially to the exact opposite of that. Well,
1: we, um, we, we also had Alex um, on, on the show. Uh, I think it was like our fourth episode. Um, yeah, it's really early. And he was, he was in the area. I don't know what it is about the bow Valley, but we seem to have a lot of biomechanists and, and for whatever reason, he was out here as were like everyone that was working in the footwear industry for two conferences and, um, uh, there there was one with the keynote speaker from nike which is madness yeah yeah and then he was out here for another just general biomechanics um conference but he uh he's one of the the lead researchers or principal researchers um with vf corp and and so he he and i and malc have been working together um but he's also designed shoes uh for the north face and um for Timberline and things and, uh, or Timberland, not Timber. Yeah. yeah, Timberland. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Timberline's the name of a ski resort in Oregon. So, uh, <laughs> um, but, but he, he spoke specifically about the p foam and, and he said that he feels like the, the shoes get, you know, 95% of what they get comes from the foam and only maybe four or 5% from the, the carbon fiber in his, based on his analysis. Yeah. And yeah. He's tried. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Oh, no, I was gonna say, yeah, when the shoe first came out, and and they mentioned that, like, so much ado was made about the carbon fiber plate. And they I remember one of the first articles, maybe one of Ed Caesars and wired mentioned this foam. And as soon as I saw that, it jumped out to me like, oh my gosh, I had no idea this existed. Like that, that is the gold right there. Like if you have a foam that returns that much energy and is that light, that is insane. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. Anyway,
2: really quick before we move on, I want to say earlier, I said shoes, midsole foams are anisotro- or anisotropic. I meant to say isotropic. I missed that. mixed that up. The plate is anisotropic. I wanted to clarify that so I don't get my engineering card rescinded. Um,
1: <laughs> it, it's okay. In uh, one of our episodes, I linked up with the Oregon Track Club and the Oregon Project. So um, that's problematic um, okay. on all levels.
2: Uh, Sorry, before I interrupted you. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, all good. Um, so so just about the PBACs. Um, when you did mention the the midsole foam, yeah, also just
2: jump in again though. Uh, yeah. Timberland was the first shoe to use that. That's one of the things that cracks exactly. me up is that. Yeah um long before nike was using it they were using, <laughs> boots the boots had yeah. the highest energy return
1: <laughs> boots that probably weren't actually being worn as work boots but as <laughs> as kick around look cool like you, work boots, like-, like you need to wear the the lumber sexual work boots <laughs>
2: i identify with lumberjacks but uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah cool um well um there was one one other thing that you mentioned kind of along these lines as well in your article uh trading souls for souls um you said i hope that shoe companies offer something similar as quickly as possible to nike's credit they published the science of the shoe up front and made no secret about its structures or components i do think uh the media has overhyped the carbon that's that's me interjecting that but yeah. um it, it was intentional on nike's part because all the other companies are like hey we'll throw the carbon fiber into our shoes and we'll compete yeah but, oh i think it, nike
2: was sitting back and laughing at all that like yeah yeah like you guys like
1: yeah. Yeah. adidas did it 10 years ago and it didn't seem to be that big of a deal but sure it's the yeah. carbon yeah um but use this is a question that I have and that I think a lot of other people have. Why other companies haven't simply recognized the innovation and adapted the blueprint puzzles me. The shoe has been out for two and a half years, uh, and nobody else has introduced a PEBC based midsole with a carbon fiber plate. Perhaps there was hesitation, anticipating regulation, or maybe the complications were in the cost or complexity of the manufacturing. Development across the board would certainly benefit the sport in its current state, as we have a situation now where races are being decided by affiliation and shoe choice. That's obviously part of the game, competition drives innovation, but it's also what has made these last few years all the more unsatisfying to watch. Um, I think you sum it up very well there, but I was wondering if you wanted to (laughs) um, say any more about that or or if anything has changed since you wrote that as far as, are you aware of any competitor shoes that do have the P-backs? Yeah, well,
2: so I I would say um, all of those reasons that I listed since I've written, I think have have had some... um, have been confirmed <laughs> so when i say whether it's this or this or this it's mm-hmm. i think it's all of those um yeah. that there is so yes the um technically shoe companies like they could make a peaback shoe with a plate and i've asked people who worked for um you know different shoe companies um several different shoe companies like why don't like why don't you do this and the first response is usually well, they have patents on all this stuff. It's like, yes, they have patents on the shape of the plate um, and a lot of other things. And this is actually one of the really important things is they do have, I think they have patents on certain manufacturing processes, which getting back to like, it's, it's very easy to be an armchair engineer and, you know, scientists are like, oh, just make these things. But yeah. in reality, it's very complex inside a company, like to do these both you know, not just from the research and development side, but strategically within a company um, from, you know, operationally doing these things is like all of the things of actually bringing that to life. is It's a very complex, um, not, it's not trivial. But so if we had unlimited resources from that front, yes, they could make it. But they'll, so they'll inevitably like go to the patent thing and say like, oh, Nike's patented lots of stuff. It's, you know, it'll be too messy. But technically, um, I I think this is true. And and I've had, again, several people have confirmed this. Like you can make a P-back shoe with a carbon fiber plate. It can't be to the same shape that Nike has. um, And it might have to be stacked a little bit differently within the shoe. So they could do that. But now this actually gets back to that that point about um, manufacturing complexity and cost. Feedbacks is very expensive, um, mm-hmm. and I really, I again, this is just my own speculation, but I f- suspect and wonder if the early four percent was actually, it might have been a loss leader for Nike, um, or very early on, like that's n- what I've heard, all, yeah. like either low or no or even negative margins to the mm-hmm. idea of like. It was actually just, it served a marketing function, you know, go and dominate the sport and create a lot of buzz and just take a hit on it. That's what their spikes, a lot of their track spikes are that where they're not Mm -hmm. making money on these $100 pairs of, you know, track spikes that they sell to a handful of high school kids who are really interested. Um, They serve to be on the foot, you know, feet of people winning, which are advertisements. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I think that the cost is a huge issue. So there's the cost. Then there's the other side that maybe it doesn't explicitly step on patent side, but it could be enough for Nike to bring a case to court. And then now if you're just in a legal battle that you might have a slight upper hand, but is going to be really expensive and hairy to litigate, that could be tricky. Um, Then from the other side, from the operational side, yeah, PBAX is not patented. Arkema owns it. That's their thing. But... Nike could have bought up all of their capacity, right? They could have. I've heard.
3: Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's what
1: Alex has told us because we, mm-hmm. we've tried to do something yeah. <laughs> on the prototype side, and it's kind of like, well, yeah, maybe spoke too soon. We can't get a hold of any P-backs. Uh, Nike has a string hold on that.
2: Yeah. They, they have the purchasing power to come in and say like, oh, it's not patented, but you know, we will sign an exclusive deal with you. And, yeah. you know, all of the capacity to make it like the factories that you have now, like we will, we'll take it all. <laughs> How much do you have? That much, we'll take it all. for
1: the next 10 years, and, or in, at least until I, this goes away. Yeah,
2: so I think there's that element. And then there's the other side of it too, where, so so again, on one side, I was critical of the shoe companies saying like, you guys, this is out there, you can do it. But I'm also very sympathetic to them from the side that for those reasons, it's really challenging. But then also, um, if you're working with, I mean, Nike is Adidas to a lesser extent, but Nike is really the only shoe company with big R&D investments, right? So like, I think a lot of people um, at home sit and think like, oh, every shoe company has these like mad scientist labs where they're trying to come up with the latest and greatest and best thing. But the reality is no, like most, most shoe companies, Nike has that. Um, but most companies might have one or two. I mean, a, a lot of them don't even have engineers. Um, yeah. but if they have engineers, they maybe have one or two. Um, and, they're, and those engineers are not doing a lot of performance work. They might be doing, that might be in the back of their mind, but they're also managing the whole spectrum of products, like developing shoes, not for the handful of elite marathoners to be racing, but for the... Tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of runners that they're, you know, making shoes to train in, and so that's that's just the you know design side of the shoe that they're worrying about. This enormous spectrum, then they're also worrying about the manufacturing of the shoe and and how to actually bring that to life. Cost. So now when you have one or two people dealing with this enormous thing, this this performance, like I mean, that's a job for a team in itself of developing the performance side that serves, you know no, you know, no cost function It's purely almost, you know, a marketing thing. So most shoe companies don't even have anywhere near that bandwidth to be doing that. Um, So there's that side. And then you get back to like, well, okay, so now say they want to develop this single performance thing for these people They have all this in place. Now the actual cost of prototyping that, like, even if they don't have a plan like, I guess this gets the other thing of the strategic side for a shoe company. It's like, at the end of the day, like they're not. So this, I mean, they're probably not going to make a shoe much better than the Vaporfly right now. Like with with the materials we have and everything there, Nike probably has their ducks in a row to have optimized this re- relatively well. That's one of the things that makes me a little sad. Is like, I'm sure they prototyped Nike tons of different iterations of the shoe um, in different altering different things, and because it's not, you know it wasn't done from the scientific, you know, peer review side. We don't know those. Yes. We know that they, it was really cool that they went to Colorado and published, you know, that and supported that study. So we actually have that data. That's beautiful, but it would be fascinating to know all the iterations that they prototyped through what, what they were working with um, just from a biomechanics, and you know, scientific standpoint. Um, but so anyways, getting back to, I don't think, I think they've, they've, I don't know if "optimized" is the right word, but the shoe is probably in with the materials it has is in a very good place right now. I don't, I don't foresee a a shoe company surpassing them in the very near future. Um, The most, so if you're a shoe company, probably all you're going to be able to do is get close, not even there, (laughs) but it would be an enormous investment, not just on the R and D side, but also on the operation side to bring this shoe to market and everything. To at the end of the day, like not being much better and probably still going to have to be really expensive if you're using these materials and these processes and not even something that you can then have massive, um, you know, economy of scale of selling lots of lots and lots and lots of volume of this shoe to make it back. Um, So it's really an unenticing thing to pitch to the high ups at your shoe company. Right. So then you think like, okay, now what if we just want to prototype some of these, like, for our elite athletes or something like that. Well, now you might be, even if you wanted to just make a version of this shoe for a handful of your athletes, you're probably going to spend tens of thousands of dollars to like just plan on how to do this. And then, then it gets back to like, okay, now you could just buy the vapor flies and resold them and like, you know, modify them and put your logo on it. And that's probably, you know, that'll cost you a couple hundred bucks. And then at the end, now you might not make an elite racing flat, but, at least your pros are doing it. And so, yeah, I I look at ever since I, I wrote that article, I can now see that argument as to why shoe companies aren't doing this is it's like, yeah, it they, they, they could. And if they wanted to really knuckle up and do it, maybe they should, because maybe that's the direction of all racing flats. Um, but I can understand that Nike has made it very hard from a material supply side. And also the business case, just doesn't make sense for a lot of companies, I think. Um, I can see that. But I could also see the business case, again, if all shoes move towards that, maybe they do need to do that. Maybe that's the future of shoes. Well,
1: I think even, even if they were to make prototypes, I think technically those would be then illegal unless they are available to... Yeah, so the general public. That's that's the challenge. Is it, they can't just give them to their athletes, even though Nike did yeah. <laughs> for the for the 2016 oh, U.S. I mean, trials.
2: Say, yeah. So Nike did that, and that was that was egregious. And I think, I mean, that was terrible because it was. I mean, that definitely altered that. I mean, not the not just the Olympic Trials, the
1: Olympics. The Olympics. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, so, I mean, that was terrible. But I would say to Nike's credit since then like with the next percent they were very careful to release the shoe publicly before their guys raced in it yeah um, at least as far as we know um but other shoe companies have blatantly violated that rule for the last couple of years right like you know whether it was Sockney or new balance Ace or Baker brooks or, or, yeah all of them have been you know racing in these shoes that we have no idea what they are and <laughs> I actually hate that rule of the IAAFs that the shoes must be available to all. Cause part of me thinks that like, if a shoe company is going to be, if if IAAF is going to demand that the current sponsorship model, the professional model of sport is shoe companies sponsoring them. Like if the shoe company wants to make custom shoes for people, I think that should be allowed. Like to me, that's totally fine. That's actually where I think this, another one of the strengths of the midsole regulation yeah is is like yeah you can wear whatever you want you can wear a custom shoe made for you and it just has to be within this limit right like so now we can have anything under the sun it just has to be within you know our defined definition of a shoe um but yeah i mean the prototype thing is is a is a totally hairy um area now but but it does get to like i think that's what it is and and it's funny i think one of, one of the things that I didn't, I didn't get to in, in that article talk about, but I actually think one of the really advantages of the Vaporfly could be that it breaks the sponsorship model of the sport. That right now, yeah. we're constrained to the single, spo- single shoe sponsor model. And, you know, I, I mean, up until like maybe two years ago, we had the rule that you could only have one logo on your Jersey. It had to be a certain size and it could only be an apparel manufacturer, which ipso facto is all you know, a shoe company. <laughs> so, so the IAAF in the rules demanded that you could only have one sponsor as a shoe company. And that was totally, you know, to benefit them so that they could basically restrict spon- your own personal sponsorships and capitalize on the sponsorships that they sell on the bibs and draw more eyes to that. So they could reap more money off the athletes. Then they, you know, loosen it up ever so slightly by allowing you to have a club affiliation, which could be, you know, in some cases people have sponsorships, but I think next year to their credit, they're opening that up and you can have, I think the proposal that what's going to come into effect in 2020 is like maybe three, three sponsors or something like that, which is great. I think that's awesome. Um, you know, I made this the huge spiel about, you know, being independent and whatnot. But I think if we want, if I was a, if, if you know, I'm professionally, I'm a scientist, but, you know, personally a runner, but for, for someone <laughs> who's professionally a runner, if we want that, you know, I enjoy the sport of professional running, not just as a participant, but as a fan. And if we want the professional model of the sport to exist it cannot continue to be single shoe companies. And so I actually saw when the Vaporfly happened, I thought like, well, this is really uncomfortable and unsatisfying right now, but maybe it will break the shoe company model because I mean, we're seeing it now where, you know, guys are bucking professional sponsorships to, to run in the shoe. My my training partner, his name is Zach Rinellis. He's a national champion in the 50K several times, the 217 marathoner he's had opportunities to have shoe sponsorships and he's turned them down because he wants to race in the vapor fly. You know, he's like, yep.
3: oh,
2: I can pay for my plane tickets to races and, and, you know, I'm going to race better in this shoe. Like, so now we're seeing a case where guys are no longer relying on shoes. And, and I'm, I look at it, I'm like, you know, this, this sucks, you know, right now in, in the very near term, but maybe, you know, maybe this will be, Break the model, and we'll now move into a more healthy, long-term. You know, maybe it'll mean everybody's racing in Nike shoes, which Nike might be very happy with that. But but if it means that everybody has different title sponsors, and it actually creates a vibrant, healthy, professional community that is different than what we have now, it could ultimately be a win for the sport. And so I see, you know, there there is potentially a silver lining there.
1: Um, yeah, I like that. I, <laughs> because it, it has been, uh, it has been difficult being uh, both a, a fan of the sport and on the sidelines um, watching, um, but also trying to participate while also trying to maintain loyalties to two sponsors and to, and to friends and to, yeah. you know, as, as someone who prides himself on loyalty, uh, that's a, <laughs> that's a challenge. It's like, uh, you can't argue with science though. So yeah. Um, yeah
2: (laughs) well tough too because it's like it does get back to this idea of like that's not the shoe that you train in and and like as as we discussed it's like it could it could be very negative to spend a lot of time training that shoe so it's like for somebody even a professional runner they may have a total like they may hate every other shoe that nike makes and those are actually getting back to the strategic side for a brand like like most of the shoes that a shoe company sells are the shoes that people run in day to day, not their very elite racing shoes. So it's like, if you're somebody, you might want to do most of your running in the, you know, the Saucony glide or, or the ultra escalante. Um, And then, you know, the racing shoe might be something different. So it's like, I, it, it might be very beneficial for the sport to like, for people to maybe have the option to have different shoes that work for different things, you know? Um, but, but it does, it is that, you know, um, that loyalty side of it is like, yeah, that's the kicker. Um, oh, one more, one more thing when getting back to this idea of it being so unsatisfying to watch for the last couple of years, I will say one thing we didn't talk about from the mechanical side is the argument not to regulate it. And this is actually something, again, as a biomechanist, I, I really can appreciate this idea. Um, and and I, I I mean, I actually had a, a very uh, personal, I would say personal tension of, of, we wrote the proposal to regulate it, but then bef- like right before we submitted it, I'm like, I don't know if I even want to propose this. Cause I, I don't know if I, I, I can see the argument of not regulating because I do think shoes will for that Shoes will self-regulate at some point. Like getting that idea of if we continue to extend the length of the shoe and the midsole length, there will be an optimal point. Um, and For sure, I, we've
1: seen it with the minimalist and maximalist movements, you know. Yeah. <laughs> They've kind of gotten back to a neutral, like a more standard shoe that once existed before. Yeah, Wanderous. well,
2: yeah. I mean, the, the Vaporfly is by all definitions a maximalist shoe. It's, it's For sure thicker than it's it is maximal and and i think the ideal is still further and we saw that again with kipchoge's 159 shoe is uh is i mean it might be 50 millimeters or more so i suspect so but like i the thing i guess i don't know is like there is this argument that eventually like because of that stabilization cost shoes will self-regulate and even with perfect materials you we're. I, I could say with almost certainty, we're, you can't have a meter long, you know, extension of the leg that like, that's not what we're going to be seeing. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's 50 millimeters, but it, maybe it's 60 millimeters. And, and it's one of those things where I think it's, it's further not far enough away from where, where we're at now, that if we allow it to not regulate, so so that's that's the side to not regulate. There There's the argument not to regulate is that there is an optimality point that we actually will naturally self-regulate eventually. And I, again, as a scientist, like I, I kind of like that because that means that the human body itself will set the regulation limit. Um, But, and, and it also means less rules and less restrictions that would be harder to enforce. So like, I think there is that, that self, self self-regulation side that, that is true. But the two, the two things that I guess I fight back on that, is that one, different people benefit more from the technology than others. So if we suddenly add more and more to a shoe, um, you could have some that you know some people who respond really really well to that, and that that is I think a little uncomfortable. Um, but two, this is the most important one, and this gets back this is gets back to that notion of being unsatisfying. If we went down the path of letting it self-regulate, I think we'd at minimal have another few years of innovations coming out but maybe more likely another decade or so and maybe even more of continually having new shoes happen where we like continually ask like the performance is shifting and we are just always asking that question of how much of this is that shoe how much of this performance was that versus the shoe how much is fitness how much of it is footwear and i think again, the last couple of years have been so frustrating and just so sad to always ask that question. And mm-hmm. even a few more years of that to me is unbearable. Like, and i, I that's thats what I get back to is like, even if we do self, self-regulate self and it comes within a couple of years, I think that, that that in itself would actually be really unhealthy for the sport to just have, because I think, I think part of us is dying a little bit as, you know, every year that goes by that we are, just continually raising our eyebrows at, at performances is yeah. just really unhealthy. because um, that's what you know running that's its value proposition, man, is like transferability across generations, across stealth, across time. And I get I get that we need innovation and um, things will change. but but I, I mean, I do think that if we if we capped the midsole height of shoes, you, you, I mean, if we especially if we capped it at what shoes used to be like 20 25 millimeters, you could have absolutely perfect, you could have you could have you know ideal foam and a carbon fiber plate going through, and it would probably only be one, one and a half, maybe two percent more beneficial than the you know current racing flats they had because I mean, even when they had carbon fiber plates. The the studies on that done in the early two thousands, it was a very noise. I mean, only some some people benefited, and they actually found I think it was it was the the benefit was highly predicted just by body mass. So it was like the heavier runners um, benefited from these plates, and they really saw in just the lighter runners, which is most elite runners, really didn't see much of a benefit. And I mean, Adidas put those in their shoes very early on, but just scrapped them. Um, so even, you know, if we had thin, thin, thin shoes, like we would be, I, I'd say largely comparable to runners from most generations and, and it would persist for the future. But that idea of it being like, again, goes back to unsatisfying is like, you watch a race now and it's like, that sucks that when you look at the starting line and you look at somebody and think, okay. Okay that adidas guy has to be three minutes better than that nike guy to beat him that's insane that sucks like that like that's no way to hold a sporting event you know um and i mean i found myself watching the amsterdam marathon a few months ago and i was cheering for the adidas guy that there was a pack of nike guys and it was it was an adidas guy who won and I was cheering for him because I was like, that's incredible
1: that <laughs> like, holy smokes, he's dominating. Like he's that much better. Yeah.
2: Much better. And 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 that's what like, oh uh, yeah. So yeah. So it's like, I mean, and again, it's like it maybe, maybe again the silver lining is maybe it just breaks the model of the sport and we now and we have to overhaul it. And that that could be a very good thing too. Um yeah. but yeah. All
1: right. wow yeah (laughs) still a lot to to digest and um we could talk for a long time (laughs) hopefully hopefully our our listeners have have been able to get in a a good medium long to long run in while listening to this and uh and then they'll have they'll have more questions um we'll definitely recommend that they they follow you on on twitter you you um and you, you share a lot of really high quality things and uh um i'll i'll put some links to some of the some of the things that you've shared in the past that we didn't even get to touch on <laughs> um yeah well uh thank you for making the time uh, i know it's a busy time of year and uh we really appreciate you sharing your your expertise with us and yeah
0: hope
1: Cheers. to have you back on um once, once we've broken and, and fix the model <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah have you do you have a specific uh uh name uh that people can get hold of you on uh like instagram twitter that
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so Instagram and Twitter are both my my just my full name Jeffrey Burns with a G G E O F F R E Y B U R N S.
0: Awesome. Is there is there like a a gap between, or is it just straight through?
1: No, nope, just straight through. Okay. And we'll awesome. put links to those uh, articles both on re- regulating the stack height and also um, to your to your site and the the article of trading souls for souls.
2: So. Awesome. Thank you. And okay. yeah, I should say I think probably when when. Listeners are hearing this. It's going to be right around the time that IAAF or World Athletics, I don't know, but they're going to be announcing, you know, I think they're what they decide to do. And I should say, if I'm in the business of forecasting, my strong suspicion is that they are, they're going to probably put some sort of wording in it that just says like, it can't be um, like, you can't have any sort of energy source in a shoe like a motor or something. But I doubt I doubt they're going to regulate it. I think they're going to go the route of self-regulation, but probably when this episode airs or right around it will be when they announce what they're going to do. Cause I think they said in January, early yeah. January. So yeah.
1: let's hope follow through and uh, hopefully there will be something that, that improves the sport.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I will say I, earlier I mentioned, I, I made the like offhand comment that could be argued that the shoes violate the, the current regulations and um, people that, that might, I don't know if that might anger people or disagree with it, but that's one of the things that frustrates me about the way the rules are written now is that it's like, they are, to me, they're written more like loopholes than like regulations. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. like There's no operational definition of anything. So they say that it can't have an advantage. It can't be an unfair advantage or assistance to, to an athlete. And it must be reasonably available to all but we have no definition of what reasonably available is. We have no definition of an advantage. So it's like these things that have so much wiggle room where one person could make the argument that they're not reasonably available to all, or at one point they weren't. Um, and, you know, you could make the argument that they are designed explicitly to provide an advantage uh, <laughs> can Even make, the, this is actually an interesting thing too. The rules elsewhere stipulate that the purpose of footwear is to protect the shoe and provide stability to protect the shoe and provide like a firm, you know, something for stability, um, a firm grip to the ground and stability. And I'm like, that's actually funny. Cause this, the shoe, like with the stack height actually is like a <laughs> the shoe. So it might even be, you know, away from the purpose of footwear, but yeah. again, but you could also then make the flip argument that because there's no explicit definition of these that they're not. So I want to clarify that, that they are not, that they're you know not technically breaking the rules right now, but then you know a passionate person you know may say in some spirit that they are, I don't know, but yeah. So you're
1: not the only one of that opinion. So yeah. you 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 have others that have your back as far uh, as that.
0: So,
2: well, I, would, I I will say though that like I'm not even necessarily of that opinion. I have like both both sides in yeah. my brain are making those arguments. But yeah. all of that rambling aside, soon enough we shall have a maybe. Maybe more clear, you know, (laughs) definition. But but but
1: some 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 version. uh, If there is
2: any guide, I think it'll just be similarly ambiguous
1: and frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, um, you, I feel like you really do a good job of articulating that that you you can see both sides um, in your article, um, trading souls for souls. So we'll be sure to link that and. Hopefully, you you your website just gets inundated with. <laughs> yeah.
2: Cool. Well, well, if it does, that'll be good because that'll mean your podcast is, you know, be reaching lots and lots of years, which is awesome. And I really appreciate you guys having me. You both are, you know, incredibly intelligent, sharp um, stewards, students of the sport, and it's uh, it was an honor to be here and to have this chat with you guys. So thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Thank you. We really appreciate it, and uh, we hope to have you on soon. Yeah, all the best with the the rest of your studies and and the defense of your thesis.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Art and Science of Running podcast. Mal and I would like to invite you to join us this spring at the Peak Run Performance Rocky Mountain Running Retreat from April thirtieth to May third. That's four days with other runners from around the world, running in a beautiful setting and discussing all things running. In addition to that, Malc will be performing gait assessments uh, throughout the weekend and will provide you some feedback about your gait, certainly discuss training, strength training, injury prevention, nutrition, and anything else that uh, have questions about throughout the weekend as it relates to running. This will be based at a lodge in the Rocky Mountains. This is an opportunity to either bring some a partner or or a training group out and and enjoy the trails together um, stay together but it's also an opportunity to meet other people from around the world this is only for adults it is co-ed um, but it's it's for runners of all ambitions and abilities whether you're a beginner or you're an olympian uh, if you've got an open mind and you want to run in a beautiful place with other like-minded people this is for you uh, we welcome you for listening to this podcast, we want to offer you 10% off. So if you use discount code ASR10, that's ASR10, you can um, get 10% off your registration of this retreat. It will fill up. We want to keep the numbers small so that we can give the attention to each participant um, that signs up. So we hope to see you this spring at the Peak Run Performance Rocky Mountain
3: Running Retreat. I smell